Ephesians 3, 14-21. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing now in a word of prayer. Lord, we pray that we might understand this prayer. And that through the work of your Spirit in us, it might even become our own prayer. As we seek your continued help and the continued grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as we seek to live out our lives here faithful unto you until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't know how to use? I'm talking about the sort of thing which you open and you think to yourself, my, what what a generous gift. Now what is it? What does it do? Uh, Maybe it was a a new gadget that just hit the market. One of these fads and trends that uh, people see on TV or online and said they feel like they need to buy it for you. Or maybe it was something more conventional which you had just never used before. Either way, if you've ever found yourself in a position like this, then then you know that you probably want to spend a little time with the instruction manual uh, before you begin putting this new gift to use. Or to imagine a similar scenario, uh, maybe you have received a gift before that you were familiar with and you were excited about, but upon opening it up and unboxing it, uh, you realize that your enjoyment of it would have to wait because it it either took batteries that you didn't have on hand or it needed a good charge uh, before uh, it could be turned on. Either way, such a situation, your gratification had to be delayed uh, until you could properly power your new possession. And in many ways, if you can understand these common experiences at all, then you can understand the experience of the Ephesians. You see, the Ephesian Christians had received a great gift from God. In fact, the gift which they received uh, was so great that the Apostle Paul spent nearly three whole chapters describing. Though they were once lost in sin, spiritually dead, separated from God, and segregated from the saints, God graciously overcame their plight through the work of Jesus Christ. And, And through faith in Christ, the Ephesian Christians were then set free from their sin, 
and its consequences. They were brought near to God and they were incorporated into the communion of the faithful. And that's the case for all, all of us this morning who are united to Christ by faith. The Lord takes us out of sin. He gloriously transforms us by giving us this gift. And, and our reception of that gift makes a difference between life and death. However, it was not the case that just because the Ephesians had received this great gift, they perfectly understood the Christian life. On the contrary, actually, the general structure of this letter demonstrates that the church needed to become, on the one hand, more familiar with the nature and the benefits of their gift. That's all the doctrinal instruction in chapters 1 to 3. And they needed help putting the gift to use on a day-to-day -day basis. That's all of the, the practical instruction in chapters 4 to 6. And so as Paul here now begins to move away from his extensive description of the gift that the Ephesians had already received, he offers up a prayer to God, to the God of their salvation, asking that God might supply that which they still lacked. That they might really understand what their gift is, and that they might have the, the power and the ability to use it. And church, the experience of the Ephesian Christians is the experience of all Christians in this regard. When we come to faith in Christ, an incredible transformation takes place. In a moment, we are changed. Even if we can't identify a moment, you don't when it took place, there was a moment when you were changed and you became a new creature in Christ. There's no going back at that point. And yet we know from experience that even when that moment comes, we are not immediately translated into a, a state of heavenly glory. We continue to live our lives here below. We continue to deal, deal with sin. Uh, we're not instantly made perfect in every way. And rather, instead, until we go to be with Jesus, we continue to stand in great need of God's work in our lives. We're like the Ephesians in that way. And so... So with all of that in mind, we should be eager to hear Paul's prayer for the Ephesians because it teaches us the way that we should be praying today as we look, like the Ephesians were looking, to the Lord to supply that which is lacking in us. We've received the gift. How do we use it? How does the Lord make it powerful in our lives? That's the question that's really being answered in this prayer. And, and to put it succinctly, what we're going to find is that Paul, number one, he, he petitions the Lord for greater strength, greater knowledge, and a greater experience of God's presence. And second, he praises a powerful God who manifests His glory in the church. So the general pattern here in this text is, is petition in verses 14 to 19, and praise in verses 20 and 21. And we begin by considering Paul's petition in verses 14 and 19. Now having completed the digression, the digression which uh, was verses 2 to 13, the apostle now resumes in our text the thought which he began back in verse 1. Notice, if you look up your page, 
that our text here begins the exact same way that last week's sermon text began. Last week he started, for this reason, I, Paul, and now we read in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now we should ask, first of all, having read those words, for what reason? For what reason? What is it that moved Paul to pray in this way? And when we take into consideration what we've just said, namely that verse 14 resumes the thought of verse 1, we conclude that this prayer is Paul's own response to the teaching contained at the end of chapter 2. It's his response to the teaching contained at the end of chapter 2. It was there that Paul had recognized these Gentile Christians in Ephesus as citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household, and living stones in God's living temple through Jesus Christ. And so because all of those things are true, Paul is moved to pray for the Ephesians so that they will be able to adjust to this new reality. Now if you're attentive to the text, perhaps you'll discover that Paul doesn't actually use the word pray here. Uh, that, that language does not uh, appear, but he's very plainly using the language of prayer. He, he bows his knees before the Father. We tend to speak of bowing the, the knee, we do speak that way in a metaphorical sense, but there's, there's no reason to doubt uh, that Paul was actually praying on his knees. This was one of the common postures mentioned in the Old Testament uh, for prayer, and it was a sign of su submission and humility before the God to whom one was praying. And the idea that Paul comes before the Lord humbly submitting to Him fits well with his description of the God before whom he was bowing down. What, what, do, what does he say about God here? He bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's a strange description of God. And it's made stranger by the fact that, that we cannot immediately detect the wordplay here there's a word play in the Greek because the word translated father and the word translated family are quite similar. They sound, sound very similar. Uh, and so uh, what point is Paul trying to make by connecting these two ideas? The fatherhood of God and the, the, the fatherhood or the families of earth and heaven. We might explain it like this. God is the creator of all things. That's a point which Paul mentioned back in verse 9. Chapter 2. And we know from the Scriptures that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in that work of creation. However, it's often the case that the Father's role in creation is emphasized. And so it is as Creator that the Father here is said to name or we might put it this way, authoritatively order and identify and organize all families or groupings in all creation. That's a broad idea, but, but it, it's something like this. 
God is the one who orders and identifies all the tribes, clans, and families on this earth. They all fall out according to his wise decree. And it's also true in some mysterious sense for every order of spiritual beings in the heavens. Uh, He has designed them. He has given them their place. And so he has, in that sense, named them as his angels, his messengers. And so by describing the Father in this somewhat strange way, Paul, what he's doing is he's emphasizing the sovereignty and the authority of God over all groups of beings in all creation. They all get their existence from Him. They are all arranged by Him. And insofar as actual fathers within those families possess authority, it is authority delegated by the Father for whom they are named. The the overarching point of this title is, is to show to us that Paul is praying to His powerful and wise Father who rules Overall. So as he comes to God in this way, what does he pray for? Well, he prays first for strength. He prays for strength in verse 16 and the first half of verse 17. The Bible tells us that Paul bowed his knees before the Father on behalf of the Ephesians that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We can observe in those lines that on a very basic level, the thing being requested for the Ephesians is that they might be strengthened with power. He wants them to be strengthened. He wants them to be strong. However, that basic request is greatly, obviously, fleshed out by the context. The power which Paul seeks out in prayer is a power which is according to the riches of God's glory. He is requesting something far beyond the power which we naturally possess as human beings. Uh, He is not requesting that that they would be able to find a little bit more oomph within themselves and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, he's asking that the Lord in heaven who rules over all creation might grant, graciously grant some of his power to these saints that they might be strong in the Lord. That the power which he seeks is that which comes from the treasury of God's rich and glorious might. He wants the Ephesians to be granted a share of of strength from the Father's infinite and immeasurable strength. And we're told here that the, that the way that this power was to be delivered is by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who is to spiritually strengthen the Ephesians with power in their inner being as He actively works within them. Now we speak about the the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying influence on us and the power which He gives from time to time. And so that makes some sense to us, perhaps. But but what does it mean for Paul to ask God to send His Spirit to strengthen Christians in their inner being? Maybe that's language we're less familiar with. The inner being mentioned here is probably used as as an all-inclusive term 
for those non-physical aspects inside of us, the thing that's not just bones and flesh and guts and blood and all that sort of stuff. It's that other stuff inside us. Things like our heart, our soul, our affections. Things like this. And so in this petition, Paul is asking for the Father to send the Spirit to work in the hearts of the Ephesians, working in their hearts, so that they might be made more like they're supposed to be as new creatures in Christ. He wants them to strengthen their hearts, to strengthen their souls, to build them up as spiritual beings. And he does so, he asks this, because that's the path, the sanctification. It's the path, the holiness. This is how we become who God wants us to be as, as the Lord gives us strength to live as those who have been redeemed, who have received the gift. And the result of this action is that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. Now that might strike us as an odd goal. Because these were folks that were already converted. Was Jesus not already dwelling in their hearts? Well, in one sense he certainly was. Objectively speaking, these believers had been united to Christ through the act of operation of the Spirit. That's one of the major doctrinal teachings of this letter. But Paul, I believe here, is praying that through God's gift of power, power which the Ephesians did not have on their own, but which they desperately needed, through this gift of power, all of that would remain true of the Ephesians as the Lord preserves them and keeps them and continues to build them up. Paul is, in other words, he's praying that through the gift of God's power, He's praying that, that Christ would dwell in them actively such that His dwelling might have a clear influence upon those hearts in which He dwells by the Spirit. He's praying that as God strengthens the Christians by sending the Spirit into them, that Christ might, through the Spirit's work, draw near to them and rule over them. He's praying that the Lord might exercise His Lordship over them through the work of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, while uh, we as Reformed Christians, uh, at least historically, have been somewhat critical of those whose evangelistic pitch basically boils down to, well, ask Jesus into your heart, let's not be too quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater. As a call to believe, that language is basically foreign. Uh, to the Bible. Uh, when, when Paul himself goes and he preaches the gospel, we don't really find him saying, all you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. But it is clear, is it not, that you do want Jesus dwelling in your heart. That is biblical language. You want Jesus dwelling in your inner man as the Spirit makes Him present, even as He's in heaven. The Spirit makes Him present to you. Because that's how God, the triune God, uses His power to spiritually strengthen you as you look to Him with faith. So let us ask the Lord to strengthen us with His power as He draws near to us and as He communes with us. Let us plead with the Father to work in us by His Spirit so that Christ might dwell and rule in our hearts. Let us make it a habit as we are physically able to go to our knees, that by God's grace we might 
take from the treasure chest of God's glorious strength, asking Him to finish what He started in us. Now let us cry out, Sanctify us, Lord. We're not done yet. We're not finished. So to do a great thing according to your glorious might for weak sinners like us. Because all of these requests, they reflect the heart of prayers of Paul's prayer up to this point. So we ask for strength. But as we come to the second half of verse 17, we come to the second part of Paul's prayer as he prays now that the Ephesians might have knowledge. In addition to his request for strength, Paul also bows the knee so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now maybe you recognized when I read that that this is another request for strength. He says, he's asking for strength for them. And that's true. Not surprising, this whole, this whole prayer is a prayer to a powerful God after all. But, but we, we distinguish because upon closer examination, it becomes apparent that Paul is now requesting strength which leads to knowledge. It is a strength to comprehend something which is difficult for our finite minds to comprehend even, apparently, as Christians. As Christ dwells in the heart of the believer, we know, because the Bible tells us, that we're rooted and grounded in love. We're rooted like a, like a tree, like a plant, in the sense that we draw life, we draw stability from the fertile soil of divine love in which Christ plants us. Jesus loves us. That's, that's life-giving. And, and unlike the, the seed sown in rocky or thorny soil planted in that love, we have the natural resources to continue growing, thriving, because we've been made objects of God's grace, so we're rooted. And also we're, we're grounded in the sense that we are built uh, on, on the solid foundation made up of Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets. We've already covered that ground and, and rooted and grounded in, in that foundation, we're secure, we're safe from harm, we're protected by the one who is benevolent towards us. Uh, we might say that with Christ living inside us, we have a certain structural integrity, if you will, to use the image of the text. All of that's true for us. And yet it is for those who have already had that experience, for those who have already come to be rooted and grounded in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Paul petitions God for more strength to comprehend something. He wants them to have knowledge. And what sort of knowledge does he see? He prays, he says, that they may know with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now maybe when you hear that, you think it's really obvious what Paul's talking about. But if that's the case, then you should count yourself privileged because scholars and commentators certainly have not felt that way. And why not? Well, pay close attention. Because Paul clearly wants the Ephesians to know the breadth and length and height and depth of something, but he doesn't tell us what that thing is. It's not supplied in the text. And so insofar as it's immediately clear to us, 
uh, we're, we're probably mentally supplying what it is he's talking about. So there have been all sorts of proposals regarding what Paul wants us to know in this four-dimensional way. Nevertheless, it would not be profitable for us to work through all of those suggestions. We'll jump straight to the one that makes the most sense. Because the context suggests that Paul is most likely continuing here to talk about the love of Jesus Christ. That has been his subject immediately prior. It's going to be his subject immediately thereafter. And so it would make good sense that that is what he's talking about in between. Having been rooted and grounded in Christ's love, Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians would come to know that love more and more. Recognizing, at the same time, that it is something which ultimately surpasses our ability to know. He says that. Uh, he, he, he says here at the, uh, let's see, in verse 19, that he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses Knowledge. Now all of these notions put together might sound contradictory, but, but they're not. I mean, how, how do we, we can put it together, but how do we put together the idea that we already know something, but we need to know it more, but we can't really know it. It's all, it's all right here mixed together in the text. Well, the idea is this. The infinite love of Christ for the Christian, surpasses our ability to comprehend exhaustively. We, we can never exhaust the love of Jesus Christ. But because Christ is dwelling within us, because we're rooted and grounded in His love, we can know something of that love, and we can grow in our knowledge of that love. And so, the apostle asks the Lord to grow the church in the knowledge of this love because it is through such growth that the saints are equipped and empowered to press forward in obedience in the Christian life. Now, now that connection between knowledge and love and growth in the Christian life might not be obvious, but... Uh, I think it's instructive that in the larger catechism, question 75, we can, here's one of the things we confess. We confess that one of, the ways that one of the ways that sanctification takes place is through the powerful operation of His Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto the Christian. So one of the things that the Spirit does as the Spirit works in our inner man is He takes the death and resurrection of Christ, and He applies it to us. He applies it to our inner man. And as that Spirit applies Christ's works to us, which is carried out in love, it was a sacrifice made in love, we begin to grow in grace and gratitude and holiness. And so I ask you, do you really know the, the depth, the height, the length, all those dimensions of Christ's love for you? Have you really grappled with the extent of the sacrifice which was made on your behalf? Or do you think it a little small thing? Do you know the sweet disposition of God towards you if you are in Christ Jesus? If you do, then give thanks because that is such a gift. And it is, it, it, when you begin to know that, comprehend it, and grow in your knowledge of that, then you know just what sort of gift you have received. 
If you don't, or if you need to grow in that regard, then follow Paul's lead. Bow your knees to the Father and ask for strength to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ. We'll never figure it all out. We'll never know the, the full extent. But we can know something and we can grow in our knowledge. And we should say that if you have never known anything, there's gospel here, if you have never known anything of this love, then you can be called to leave your sin behind and come to the Christ who died on the cross for those whom He loved and who was raised from the dead to give them life because there is no greater love than this. Coming to know that love is the beginning of the Christian life, it's the middle of the Christian life, and it's the end of the Christian life. So Paul asks for strength. He asks for knowledge. And as we come to the end of verse 19, he asks for presence. Or we might say he asks for a greater experience of the presence of God. Understood in this way, we can view Paul's final petition as simultaneously short but powerful. He bows his knees to the Father that, he says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's somewhat mysterious language, but let's remind ourselves again that this prayer is Paul's response to the teaching which took place at the end of chapter 2. And at the close of chapter 2, Paul was teaching the Ephesians about the way in which they had been incorporated into God's living temple. They had been made uh, as living stones in the living temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A temple in which God now dwells. He makes His presence known in His church. And so when Paul prays, that the church of the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God, it is a prayer that they might be filled with, uh, with the... Excuse me. It, Paul is praying that God would fill the church with His glory, just as He had filled the tabernacle and the temple with His glory of old. If you are familiar with those accounts, uh, the, the raising of the tabernacle, the raising of the temple... One of the most uh, amazing parts of those stories is that once those uh, buildings, once those uh, structures were raised up, uh, the story ends in a very climactic way as uh, signs and wonders accompany the, the filling of God's glory into His new dwelling places. As clouds covered the structure and people were forced out as God made His presence known. Well, all of that is what's being entailed in this prayer, that God might do something like that in the church. It may not be accompanied with the same signs and wonders. It may not be visible in the same way that the filling of a physical tabernacle and temple were, but it is just as real. It is just as real. So this is a prayer for God to do with the church what He set out to do with the church. That they might truly be treated as a living temple. Paul wants God to commune with the saints, fully manifesting His presence in their midst through the Spirit. He wants them to know that God is among them. He wants them to witness the divine glory in all the senses that the divine glory can be witnessed and revealed in this present age. He wants those who have been brought near through Jesus Christ to understand that God really is near. 
Or to use the language of the text, he, he wants God to fill up the church with his fullness. And this is another pertinent reminder, as we've already received a couple of times in this letter, that God is dwelling in our midst. So it should be our desire, as Paul prayed for the church so long ago, it should be our desire that we would grow in awareness of that fact and that we would grow in the comfort which we derive from that fact that God has come near to us. He has made His presence known in the church. Now, our hearts should long for greater familiarity with God's presence. Our, our prayers should reflect that heart's desire. So let it, us make it our prayer that the Lord would fill us up with all His fullness as the Spirit leads us to a greater awareness of God's glory and His glorious dwelling in our midst. And, it, and as we ask for this, feel, this filling, along with strength and knowledge, because as the Lord gives us these things, <clears throat> we, we grow in our application, excuse me, we grow in our appreciation of the gift of salvation which we have received. When the Lord begins to give us these things, then we learn to put the gift which we've received to practical use. We know how to live. We know how to, we know how to live for God as we lean upon His strength, as we are filled with the knowledge of the great things that He has done and allow that to direct us, and as He makes Himself known to us personally, that spills over into every aspect of our life. So as we come to the end of verse 19, that concludes Paul's petition. That takes up the bulk of Paul's prayer. But as we come to verse 20, the apostle transitions from petition to praise, penning a, a short doxology to the God who is on the receiving end of these requests. Good reminded to us that our prayers, we go to the Lord, we boldly ask, but it shouldn't be all asking. We also praise the Lord. And so as Paul begins to praise the Lord here, he gives us another description of the one who is worthy of our prayer. Here's what we read in verse 20. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work, Within us. What an incredible portrayal of God's infinite power and majesty. Think about those words. Paul has made some large requests in his prayer strength from the one who possesses supernatural power, comprehension of that which surpasses knowledge, the experience of God's full presence. And yet at the end of the day, he still understands that he is still talking to the God who is able to go way above and beyond whatever we ask or could even imagine asking. God's power to give exceedingly, exceedingly abundantly far transcends. I mean, if, if the, the Greek text piles up words like this. It far transcends whatever we could even come and ask. Because He's a God who works in power. Even that converting, sanctifying, transforming power which He gives to us. That's the God who we approach in prayer. The God who is more eager to give than we are to ask. Who can give more than we can even think. And who is doing far more than we can perceive. That's the God we approach every time we pray. And if we really believe that, if we really consider that, it would transform the way that we pray. I mean, you can't ask too much from a God who can always give more than you know to ask for. And so we can, we can pray big, bold prayers 
for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for ourselves and for one another, knowing that we will never tap out the power source to which we are going when we approach the God of the universe, the one from whom every family in earth and in heaven is named. And having attributed this power to God, Paul then blesses the Lord, saying, To Him be glory. This is the work which God does in the church is intended to make us look good. It's not intended to puff us up. Certainly not intended to fuel our arrogance that we have strength. We have knowledge. God's with us. It's not about our egos. Whether we're talking about the, the work of conversion as the gift of salvation is given or the work of sanctification as we are strengthened, enlightened, and filled. God does it all and so all glory belongs to Him. When the world looks upon us, when the world looks upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they should see God's perfection and power. That's why Paul says that this glory is specifically to be manifested and ascribed in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Much more that can be said, but there's you a doctrine of the church in short. God has made for Himself a people where His glory is made known forever and ever. Amen. To all eternity, glory is to be ascribed to God, made known in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is composed of those ransomed by the Christ who loves us. That's why the glory of God is made known in the church and in Christ Jesus. He ransoms and redeems us. And so the glory goes back to God. So congregation, it is our great duty and privilege as those who have been added to the church that is Christ's body to praise the God of glory and to proclaim His glory until kingdom come. As long as we continue to bow our knees before the Father, as long as we continue to go before the Lord in prayer, making our petitions known, let us never cease. To glorify the name of the one who can do far more than we can think or ask. When we make prayers to a powerful God like this, we can expect that He will give what we ask and more so, in accordance with His will, thereby exhibiting His glory for all to see. And so we say to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And to that we say amen. Let us pray.